and repeat our affirmation with me. Uh, this is God's word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking in the Word of God at 1 John, a small letter the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, wrote to believers in his old age. And what we're going to be looking at is not an extensive covering of everything in this book, uh, but we're going to be looking at a theme in this book, and that is answering the question, how can I know that I am really saved? How can I know that I'm really saved? You see, I remember practically every Sunday and every Wednesday night at youth group from around the age of third grade um, until I was a senior in high school. Every time I was in a church service and an invitation was given, the, the pastor prayed that sinner's prayer at the end and invited everybody who wanted to receive Jesus to pray this prayer as well. I would partake in that prayer. I wouldn't always raise my hand, but I was always praying that prayer every single Sunday, every Wednesday. I probably prayed it over 5,000 times, right? I was baptized at least three times that I can remember. Um, I'm not quite like some people maybe in here, maybe this is some of you, you're, you're literally baptized like every year. We might as well set you up a little locker in the baptismal room. That wasn't quite where I was at, but still, three times is, is a lot of times to be baptized. I, I was praying this prayer and I was pursuing Jesus, what I thought, and, uh, but at the same time, I, I didn't have this confidence in my salvation. I wasn't sure that I really was saved. And you see, what I would see growing up in the church is I would see people giving their lives saying, hey, I'm, I'm called by God to go overseas and, and go and preach the gospel to this people group in a, in a nation I've never been to with a language that I don't know yet, uh, but God is calling me to this. And so these people get up and go, and sometimes they go to this people group and they even die, sacrificing their lives, uh, only to, to really be forgotten a lot of times. It's not like their names as those uh, you know, martyred for Christ get their names in the national headlines, right? We don't see their names on the news. This person died for Jesus Christ. But I saw these people giving up their lives for the sake of sharing this gospel message with, with such confidence. I saw people in the church, you know, surrendering their things, giving their money and their resources to those in need uh, in such a, a huge sacrificial way that just baffled me as, as a kid because I was like, man, you worked hard for that. I would, I would never want to give up all my stuff like that. Think of all the, the toys I could buy. Think of all the cool stuff I could get with that, right? Even, even seeing the confidence in my dad who I remember one, I think it was a Sunday evening after a church service we had one night, we're driving home and it was, our church was in downtown Orlando and he saw a homeless guy and I guess God just moved in his heart and he picked the guy up and we took him to get some dinner and he bought him some gift cards so that he could, you know, have some more meals and he used that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And me as a kid, I'm sitting there just kind of confused, like, why are we picking up this homeless guy? And he turns around and is talking to me in some Donald Duck voice, like, they, like, he thought it would be cute to me, but I was just confused, right? I was like, what is this, Dad? Like, why are you so concerned about this? I never had this confidence. 
And so my hope this morning is, as we look at not an extensive list of, of things that prove we're believers, but, but a very important, significant list, three really things we can observe in our lives that prove that are fruit of those who surrendered truly to Jesus, my hope is you will test yourself. And you will ask yourself the question, am I truly saved? Am I really a member of God's family? And my hope is that you'll do that honestly, right? So essentially, one of the reasons John wrote this letter to Christians was so that they could have confidence in their faith. He he says, and you can circle the the handful of of verses that I go through over this message, because again, I'm just going to go through little verses that kind of summarize some things. But 1 John 5, verse 13, he says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wanted these believers to be confident in their salvation. Because you see, when we're confident in our salvation, we're confident to go and influence and impact the world for the glory of Jesus. When you're confident that you are walking with Jesus, you won't be filled with this arrogant pride. You'll be filled with this humble obedience that says, Jesus, I want to do what you're calling me to do in life. And in doing so, you're going to be influencing your spouse, your families, your neighbors in this world to the glory of Jesus, advancing the gospel. In that place, we're going to be a church that's not just a microcosm of the world that gathers together and sings songs about Jesus. We're actually going to be the biblical church that makes an impact. So starting off with the first sign that we can see, according to John, that we are sincere, authentic followers of Jesus, it is this. The first sign is that you have fellowship with other believers. The first sign you are legitimate in your faith and your surrender to Jesus is that you are in fellowship with other Christians. John says in chapter 1, verse 7, if we are living in the light as God himself is in the light, Then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This word John uses, fellowship, that's used all throughout the New Testament, is the Greek word koinonia, and what it means is to hold something in common. So Christian fellowship essentially means that we are sharing in life together. We are living life together, holding in common the work of Jesus Christ in each of us. Each of you in this room, hopefully if you're a member of this church, you have been saved from from your sins and death, and you've been brought into new life through Christ, and now together with other believers who that same thing has happened to, you get to live out and experience and worship and do life together. Doing Life together doesn't mean I come to church on a Sunday morning, I come to church on a Wednesday night, and, and I do my worship thing, and I say hey to the couple people I'm an acquaintance with, hey, how you doing, it's good to see you, and, I, and I'm guilty of that, right, because, you know, the reality is we can't know everybody in this room, we can't know, you know, every single person in depth who goes to this church, but again, it, it's not just coming and saying hey to those acquaintances, worshiping, and then leaving, instead, we see all throughout the New Testament that that Christian fellowship includes things like bearing one another's burdens, providing for those among us who are in need. It it involves us gathering together, praying together, singing together, discipling one another. All of these things we're doing together, unified with the goal of bringing Jesus Christ glory. Do you hear this? Because I want each of you to think about this this morning. When I talk about fellowship being an evidence of our faith, I want you to really be challenged in your heart and in your own lives. Because what we often do, I think, is we make church, even if you're not one who just comes and checks the the box, right? Sometimes we still make church this social club that, again, is pretty much just like the world. 
Because in the world, what do we do? We go and hang out with people that, that we have things in common with, that we're interested in and that we're friends with, and we just go see them and chit-chat and hang out, right? And we just have a good time together. Church, you, you don't just come in as a social club and gather with people that you're friends with. That's a good thing. We glorify God when we have friendships and when we enjoy time together. But instead, we, we gather together with people who are different than us, but the same as us in that they've been saved from their sin. You don't just pick your best friends and say, hey, we're, we're going to go and do church together. We come together with everyone else who might be a little weird. I'm a little weird. You're all probably a little weird in some way. And we say, I'm going to see beyond myself, and I'm going to enter into fellowship, relationship. I'm going to do life with these other believers who are seeking Jesus with me. Guys, we can't treat church also like a, like a buffet, right? We, we don't come on Sundays, you might have heard this, and, and then the goal isn't just to leave fat and happy and go out and you just rest the rest of the week. You never serve, you're never engaged with anybody else. You just hear something, you leave, and then you're resting, and then next week you come back and you want to get filled up again. That, that's not the goal. That's, that's not the purpose. That's not evidence that you understand what Jesus Christ has done. When we know Jesus, he calls us into fellowship first with himself, and then with one another in this body of faith, in the body of Christ. We don't pick and choose. We, we willingly go and interact with people who are different. And here's what God does in that. He uses our fellowship to sanctify us. What, what does that mean? That means, if you don't know that word sanctification, it essentially means the process of God making our character, our lives, our attitude more like the life of Jesus. More like the character of God. In our fellowship with those who we usually wouldn't spend time with or hang out with, we're seeing the beauty in that, hey, God did not save me because I have some cool personality or because I have some cool giftedness. We're reminded that, okay, look, we're all really different, yet God has saved this person over here and this person over here and this person over here and me, and we're all totally different. We see and we're moved to this place of like, wow, there's nothing good in us. It's all the good work of God through Jesus Christ and and now I get to grow in compassion and love and understanding for people who have all different backgrounds, right? Because the church is a unified body of people coming together from all different corners of the earth to worship Jesus together, to hold fellowship with one another, hold in common the work of Christ and do life together. Do you hear that? Are you in fellowship? And let me say this as I go to the, the second point, which will be our, our longest point this morning. But uh, the Apostle John, it's a small book in 1 John, but he uses the word love or you should love or you should not love or some form of loving around 57 times in this tiny little, you know, four-page book. So all of these things that we're going to see are, are based on the foundation of first loving God and then out of that flows a love for one another. So are you in fellowship? If you're in fellowship, you're showing somewhat that, that you truly love God and that you now in turn love one another in the body of Christ. But the second point we see according to John that we truly are saved is that we are in obedience to Christ. We're, we're living lives that, that say, okay, Jesus, I want to obey you. I want to follow you and do what you've called me to do. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, we can be sure that we know him. We can be confident if we obey his commandments. If we are being obedient to Christ. This seems kind of broad, right? Because is he saying that for me to be sure in my salvation, I have to make sure that I have 100% of my Christian life obeyed God's commands? If there's any time I've messed up, then 
Sorry, you can't be sure. Like, is he saying you have to be 100% obedient 100% of the time? Or maybe, is it like a 60-40 rule? Where as long as like the majority of time, I'm like obedient to Christ, so yeah, I I should be good, right? What's he saying? We're, We're gonna go all through this obedience and what this looks like, but let me first say simply, obedience definitely is doing what you're asked, right? Like, we know what obedience is. If you're a parent, you ask your child to take out the trash, and they do it, they were obedient in it. If they say, no, I'm not going to do it, or you get home later, they haven't cleaned their room and all that stuff you've asked them to do, they were disobedient. We know what obedience is, right? But what we see in Scripture, what we see according to, to John and the other disciples and Jesus, is we see that, that they're more referring to this heart posture before our obedience, the heart posture that leads to obedience. They're looking for what is your heart posture towards the God of all creation? Is your heart and your interaction with God, think about the way that you interact with God when when you feel led by God to do something. Is your heart one of humble obedience that says, Lord, I will do whatever you call me to do, whatever you ask me to do, wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. No matter how hard it is, no matter how, how much I don't wanna do it, I will do it. Are you humbling yourself? Or are you begrudgingly always saying, God, I don't wanna do that. Why are you always telling me to do things I don't wanna do? Are you always focused on your plans and your purposes? Because guys, and look, sometimes, a lot of times if you ask my wife, I'm focused on myself firstly. Are you willing to obey God when he calls you to push yourself aside and, and humbly follow in obedience to him? What is your heart posture to God? Can you see beyond your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own personal desires? Where are you? Because Jesus says some hard things about obedience. One of the things, if you've been in church for even a year, you've probably heard this passage. He, Jesus says this to a group of people. He says, many will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you worker of lawlessness, you who break God's laws, you who are disobedient, get away from me. And this should be kind of concerning to us. If you've heard this passage, it's a little concerning because these are like varsity level Christians he's speaking to, right? This isn't just like, oh, hey, these are people who come to church every week. These are people who it's like, hey, you three, I need you on the demon casting out squad right now. We got a code nine, whatever, right? Like, you're going over here. Oh, hey, guys, you want to you wanna hear the gospel? Look, we got some people who do miracles in the name of Jesus. Like, these people are, you know, seemingly pretty spiritual, right? Pretty, pretty much like doing things that I've never done. I've never cast out a demon. I mean, the only miracle that I've really partaken in is salvation, that I've been saved. But I've never healed someone in the name of Jesus. I've prayed for it. But I want you to see the key here, again, with our heart posture is, is it's not about how spiritual you are. It's not about how, how many seemingly spiritual things you've even done. The key here is, do you love God? And then out of that overflowing of loving God, do you love others? The two things Jesus says are the most important commands that we are to obey. Do you love God and do you love others? Jesus says in John 6, something I was reading a couple weeks ago that I thought fit in kind of well with this. He's being followed by a group of people who are, you know, obviously fascinated with the miracles that he's doing because if we saw Jesus today doing the miracles he was doing, we would all probably be following him. We would be fascinated. He was healing people who were like lame from birth, right, who were deaf and blind, all this stuff. He was casting out demons. He was like multiplying fish and bread, all this stuff, right? 
They were following Jesus, it says, because of the miracles he was doing, thinking, okay, this might be the Messiah. But it gets to a point where they look at Jesus when there's a little bit of a breaking point, it seems, and they say, you know what, Jesus, we want to perform God's works too. I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to, I want to glorify God. What should I do if, if I want to perform God's works? You know what Jesus responds to them? He looks at them and he says, the only work God wants from you is to believe in the one he has sent. Believe in me, Jesus says. Focus on trusting and having faith in me. Don't worry so much about the spiritual, about, about what you're supposed to do spiritually, about, about all these miracles and stuff. You're focusing on the wrong thing. And I think we do the same things, right? We get so obsessed with the spiritual side of things that we ignore the simple foundations of the gospel, the foundation which is so truly life-changing, which actually holds the power. Do you notice that? I mean, I've been guilty of this. That's why I'm saying it with such enthusiasm because this is like real to me. I I get so obsessed with, like I'm telling you the amount of times I've said, Lord, like Paul talks about praying for the gift of prophecy. So I said, God, I want to prophesy. Give me the gift of prophecy so I can encourage the church and and so that I can glorify you. And I'm trying to do that with a good heart. I'm praying, God, help me to have the gift of of miracles so that I can heal people and pray for people to be healed. I get so obsessed with that. While at the same time, I'm, I'm not focused on really just getting in the word and understanding the simple truths of the gospel. I think we're so guilty of that because obeying God truly It begins with the gospel, understanding it, and the Holy Spirit taking this simple message and illuminating our hearts with it. Do you hear that? This is where obedience begins. When we hear the simple message of the gospel, the gospel that, again, as a child I heard so much I could have repeated to you, but I didn't get it. I wasn't astounded by it. I wasn't amazed by the work of Jesus. And many of you sit in here week after week and you hear the gospel, but it doesn't do anything to your heart. Your heart is hard to this message. It's the same message you've always heard. It's never actually been illuminated in your heart. What I'm trying to say is you need to not just know about God. You need to know God. That that knowledge needs to move from up here. It needs to move into your heart. Let me give you an illustration and try to help with this. I, I think can explain a little bit of what I think happens when the Holy Spirit does this, illuminates the gospel in our hearts, right? If you're in a relationship with like a best friend or a spouse or or a parent who really loves you, there's been a moment in those relationships probably, you've all probably experienced this at least in one of these relationships where they look at you and they really express how they feel about you and it just becomes real, right? So like a best friend looking at you one day, maybe you had a long day and you're like sitting there, your best friend just looks at you and they're like, man, you have no idea how much I care about you, dude. I'm gonna be here forever. I'm never gonna leave you. If you ever need anything, I'll be there. I, I am your guy. Or a spouse, when they grab your hands, right, and they look you in the eyes and they say, I love you so much. I love you more than you'll ever know. There's nothing you could do to make me not love you. Or a father or a mother, and they, they, they look at you as a child and they say, son, I, I would literally die for you. I care about you that much. In those moments where those people are looking at us in the eyes and they're just speaking these things to us, something changes, right? We say, I knew that. I I knew my dad loved me. I knew he cared about me. I knew my wife really loved me. Obviously, she married me. I knew we were best friends. But wow, like that just hit the heart. You know what I mean? 
In the same way, whenever you surrender yourself to the truth of the gospel, whenever you look at Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, I'm going to be completely rooted in you. You are going to be not just my savior, but you are the Lord of my life. I I believe in you and I love you and I want to follow after you wherever you tell me to go. When we are rooted and grounded in the truth of Christ, the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts. He takes that truth and and it catches fire in our hearts. It no longer is just something we speak. It becomes every part of the way that we live as people. It moves into obedience. Jesus talked about this occurrence like this in John chapter 16. He he tells his apostles, the spirit of holiness will come to you. And when the Holy Spirit comes to you, he's going to take of mine and he's going to glorify me. What he means when he's saying this is all these truths you're hearing about Christ, all the things that, that Christ commanded of his people, when the Holy Spirit helps you to be, uh, see that truth and it be illuminated in you, it's all going to be, man, this is bringing glory to Christ. I see the big picture of how, how Jesus is the goal. My happiness isn't the goal, right? It's not about what I want. I see that the goal and the good goal, the thing that brings the most joy to all creation, is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what happens, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes in and he takes the truth that Jesus has done and said and and all this stuff that we see in the word and he illuminates it so that it brings glory to Christ. Finally, we understand and we bring glory to Christ and all these things. So let me ask you, Many of you, I imagine, are obedient to the things of Christ. Some of you are like life group leaders, right? Many of you serve in different ways and do all these things, okay? Why honestly are you doing these things? Are you doing these things with the heart that says, Jesus, I truly want you to use my life as a vessel so that I can bring you glory? Or are you doing it because you say, I truly want people to think I'm a good teacher. I truly want people to see when I give and say, wow, look look how nice they are. Are you doing it with selfish motive because of how you want to be viewed in the public eye? Because people in the world, that's how they, that's why they do good stuff most of the time. But whenever we see the gospel, understand it, it's illuminated in our hearts. We're gonna do all these things in obedience to Christ for the glory of Christ, out of love for Christ. It's our motive Our motive, what is your motive? Is your motive in obedience to Christ the love of Jesus Christ and the desire for his glory? Our motive should never be fear of punishment. We misunderstand God when we think, okay, I've got to do this because I'm afraid if I don't do it, I'm messing up. Maybe I've I've sinned and God's going to be mad at me and he's going to punish me. Or maybe this is a problem I think a lot, and not just my age, I think it's, it's kind of weaved its way all throughout our culture, but another big problem we have is we view God as, okay, I'm going to do what God tells me to do, even aligning with the Bible, but because I want to receive blessing. My motivation isn't love for God and people and desire for Christ's glory. My motivation is I want to receive gifts. That can't be our motivation. When the truth of God's love for you displayed in Christ Jesus becomes truly astonishing, you will see like John says in chapter four, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. He moves us to love by us seeing truly the depth of his love for us. So think about it like this, right, in terms of motive. If God is our father, right, think about myself as a father. If I look at my daughter, Anna Joy, and I'm trying to motivate her by, by fear. And I say, Anna Joy, Daddy's going out of town this week. 
and hey, I'll, I'll be back next Friday, but I might not come back at all. Hey, Anna Joy, I also, I'm, I'm going to see this other family. I have like another family and I, I kind of care about them more, okay? So, so I, don't, I might stay with them permanently, who knows? Anna Joy, another thing, I, I'll probably bring you a gift when I come back, but remember, I might not come back at all, so don't hold your breath. Right? Now, in light of all that, Anna Joy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey me, all right, because daddy might not come back, right? So obey the things I said. How torturous, how evil, right? Like, that's, that's stupid. I would never use that as a parenting tactic, right? Because what I, what I may do, what it may cause in my daughter is, is a little bit of fear-based obedience. She may say, man, I really want my dad to come back, so I'm going to do what he's asked me to do. But after a short period of time, that little fear-based obedience is going to turn into this loathing of me as her father. This absolute hatred of, how could he do that to me? How could he require this of me and, and not give me anything at all? Like not, not, not show me that he just loves me. On the same end, if I'm just spoiling her with stuff and always bribing her to get what I want out of her, eventually there's going to come a time where she doesn't need my stuff anymore. So in just spoiling her with stuff, like I've ruined our relationship because one day she's going to say, I don't need you anymore, I'm gone. Instead, we see that, that God is not like that at all. God, who is the best father, doesn't want us unsure of his love. He doesn't bribe us and say, come here and I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. Instead, we see in scripture that, that he leads us to obedience when we understand that while we were still sinners, he loved us so much that Christ died for us. When you were at your worst, when you were your most disgusting, that place is when God displayed, hey, you're horrible, you're wicked, you don't want me, but I want you. I care about you. I love you more than you'll ever understand. And in that place of acknowledging his love, we then are moved to love and obedience. So now with the gospel illuminated in our hearts, and now that we have proper motive behind obedience, John says in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident on the day when we stand before the Lord. John told them that, that they could tell if they were truly sincere in their faith by looking at their actions, examining this obedience. If they truly loved one another right? They could, they could see that there, there probably wouldn't be a ton of bickering all the time between them. If they truly loved God, right, then they wouldn't be so focused on themselves all the time. And golly, do we not do that in the church? We want everything to go the way we want it to go. I mean, I'm not going to rant about that. I don't know what, where that came from, but that, that happens, guys. I'm telling you. You see enough people in the church, like, there's a lot of you that probably, you just want what you want. You're not worried about us glorifying Christ together, you're not worried about the plans of God. You're worried about me, what I want. That's a sign that, that I'm not walking in this attitude that says, Jesus, whatever you want from us, we want to do, right? So ask yourself this. These are basic, some basic obediences that we're called to in Scripture. With proper motives, ask yourself, are you doing these things? Have you sought to reconcile with the one who you have conflict with? There's a lot of conflict in our world, and because of Facebook, it oftentimes goes public, right? And what we see a lot of times in the church is conflict never resolved. We see people just 
fine with staying in, in hatred towards one another. And, and Christ calls us to reconciliation with one another. If we can be reconciled, our sinful selves, before God, then we can certainly be reconciled with one another. Have you forgiven the person who has wronged you time and time again? Because remember, Jesus calls us to forgive without keeping track. He doesn't say there's a cap on our forgiveness. He just says keep forgiving as you yourself have been forgiven. Have you helped the one in need? Because remember what Jesus says. He says when you help the person in need, when you provide them with clothing or water or whatever, he says you've actually provided for me in my need. In doing for them, you've done for me, Jesus says. Here's a tough one. Have you, have you shared the gospel in the last week with someone? Have you, have you tried to tell someone about Jesus? Because remember what he said in Matthew 28. He commanded his people, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Have you done that? Are you seeking to do that? Are you praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel? Are you being discipled? Are you discipling someone? So many of these things I think we're missing out on. I think we're dropping the ball on this obedience aspect. I think we have this level of spiritual obedience on the outside that Jesus says again in that passage I mentioned at the beginning, but we're missing out on these core aspects of obedience and our motive behind that obedience. Where are you at? Are you obeying Christ? Are you growing in Christ? But let me, let me get to the third point and, and we'll be done. The third and final sign is, is that you, as a follower of Jesus, are putting sin to death. That you are putting sin to death. And think, in my own life, in my own life. 1 John 3, verse 9, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. Now, it's easy to read this part of the text and, and hear this point about putting sin to death and be discouraged because you think, Man, in my Christian life, I've sinned probably like a million times. <laughs> I still mess up. Does that mean that I'm not saved? Well, no, we gotta understand that what John is saying here, he's saying those of us who make a practice towards sin. Remember, it always goes back to the heart. And so this isn't an excuse for sin, but, but analyze your motive or, or your view towards your own sin. Do you view the sin in your life as, as sort of this like thing that you're not really repentant of? You have really no true desire to turn from it and go the opposite direction. You, you really don't feel bad about it. You're just like, it's there, it's gonna be there, it's whatever. If that's your attitude towards sin, then you have reason to worry, according to John. He, he says a lot more about sin other than just this one verse. But if that's your attitude towards sin, you might be a little, you might need to be a little worried about your relationship with Jesus. Instead, as followers of Christ, our attitude towards sin should be one where we see the sin within our heart, we've acknowledged the wickedness that lives within us, and we hate it. This doesn't mean I hate myself. I'm not telling you to go leave this place, hate yourselves, because God loves you. God has called you to be his child. God cares immensely for you. But do you hate your sin? Do you hate it? Do you wage war against it? Because the Christian life, what happens is upon your surrender to Jesus, right, we are given a new nature. Jesus says it like this in John 3. He says, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God, right? And as we are born again, as we receive this new nature through faith in Jesus Christ, our sin, which once defined us, which once held on to us, enslaved us, 
which once was the thing that, that we used to pursue satisfaction and purpose, it gets defeated. That's our old nature. And we move into a new nature where now when God looks at you, he doesn't see the depth of, of here's how wicked you are and here's the way you keep messing up. Instead, he sees Jesus Christ standing right in front of me, living a perfect life, and he's covering me completely. He's covering you completely. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Christ's perfection and righteousness. And now, with that in mind, you pursue a life of righteousness. You pursue to be like Christ. You pursue to put to death your sin. It has no true power over you. But be careful, because if you give your sin an opportunity, it will rear its ugly head. It will try to take over, won't it? We all can agree on that. We all can acknowledge that. Let me give you an illustration for this that I think is good. And David, I was pronouncing one of the words wrong, so thank you, Pastor David, right? But Dr. Jekyll, no, Dr. Jekyll. Gosh, I want to say Jackal. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, everybody know that story or heard it? Matt Clary, I think, was the only one who's read the book in the last service, so y'all are okay. But essentially, let me summarize what happens, right? Uh, so essentially, there's this guy, Dr. Jekyll, and he's a fine, upstanding citizen, but what he finds is, is that he's got like these two parts to himself. He, he has like these really bad desires, and what he feels like, what he calls himself is he says, I'm an incongruous compound of good and bad mixed together. And so he's this really intelligent chemist, and what he does is he creates this potion that's going to separate the two parts of himself. And so he's successful in that, and what he has is he has his one side, Dr. Jekyll, who comes out during the day, and then he has his other side, Mr. Hyde, that comes out only during the night. But what he finds is that Mr. Hyde, his, his evil half, is far more wicked than he ever imagined. He was spiteful, angry, vengeful. He murders people. Every single one of his thoughts was self-centered. He was completely and utterly despicable. He was horrible. And, and what, what the author says he discovers is, he says, I discovered through this process that man is not truly one but two. It, it wasn't that I was a hypocrite, he said. Both sides of me were completely sincere. Does that relate to you? Because it should. We as Christians, we have this honest, sincere desire to pursue after Jesus, to submit to him, to follow him, to be obedient to him, to do what is good for other people. But then when we turn around, we have this Mr. Hyde in us, our flesh, the Bible calls it, that is always seeking self-satisfaction, that is always seeking what we want and what is evil, what is rebellious against God. And if we give it a chance, our Mr. Hyde will come up and he will, he'll try to take the reins and he'll try to lead us back into destruction. You must be killing sin in your life or your sin will begin to kill you. The Apostle Paul shows us the extent of our evil when he says in Romans chapter 7 verse 18, he says this, nothing good lives in me, that is my sinful nature. And if Paul is saying nothing good lives in me, the guy who wrote like over half of the New Testament, the guy who, who like gave his life for Christ, he's saying, hey guys, nothing good lives in me, then nothing good lives in you. Nothing good lives in me. We are completely and utterly sinful apart from Christ. I can't defeat my sin. If I'm constantly looking, how can I defeat my sin? I I'm gonna fail 100% of the time. I'm never gonna have victory. What I need is not to be the hero, but I need a hero to come in and save the day. And that's Jesus Christ. That's what he's done, isn't it? 
Have you realized that? Has the gospel not just become, oh, here's this guy talking about Jesus saves the day again. Has it truly been illuminated in your hearts? Do you truly get the extent of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf and on the behalf of the world? Because when we understand that, we no longer have to figure out, okay, here's how I defeat my sin. I gotta focus on doing this better and this better. Instead, we simply look to Christ. We set our attention, our focus on him, and we see that he's already achieved the victory. We are victorious because he is victorious on our behalf. We're not defeated. The game's over. It's done for those who are in Christ. Do you hear that? That should be something that that your hearts are are rejoicing in, that leads you to great joy. Because you see, in the New Testament and and other places in Scripture, what we don't get is, we don't get, here's a nine-step plan to to doing better in life. We don't get, here's here's exactly how you're going to overcome your sin by, you know, doing these three things. What they do in scripture, what the, what the gospel writers, the biblical writers do is, is they remind believers, here's who God is and here's what he's done and here's what he's doing. Here's what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And they spend the first few chapters doing that, sometimes more, and then after that, they show, okay, now in light of what Jesus has done, here is just what naturally happens in the life of the believer. Here's what God calls you to when you know these things. Are you hearing me? This is important because what you don't need is another nine-step plan. It's not that Alcoholics Anonymous and all these things are are bad, right? They can be beneficial. They can be helpful. Sometimes we need, like, therapy and these things. But what we need more than anything is to remember and know the foundation. We need the foundation of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done to be illuminated in our hearts. Has that happened with you? Because the irony of getting better as a Christian is those who, who get better are the ones who acknowledge and have a grasp that their getting better isn't determined based on their own ability. It's determined completely on, on God, his accomplished work. We don't get better until we truly grasp and understand God already has accepted me. He already loves me. He already saved me through Jesus Christ. Now I get to grow. Now I get to be more like him. We love because he first loved us. We kill our sin by daily submitting and surrendering to Jesus. Hear this. And I tell the students this all the time. Like I try to encourage them, read your Bibles, guys. Read your Bibles. But if we spend 90% of our days enveloped in the culture of the world, enveloped in TV shows and all this stuff, which I'm guilty of like, I really enjoy television, I really enjoy entertainment, and a lot of stuff that our culture has to offer. But if I am so enveloped in it, and I give maybe 5% of my time, which most of us don't even give 5% of our time to truly studying the word of God, then how can I ever expect to have victory over my sin? You best believe that our culture, our generation, if we do not change something, if we do not set our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ, then we are going to be totally overcome by false doctrine, false teaching that is teaching us all these things the world wants us to believe that are truly alive before God. It's kind of terrifying. I want us to collectively be true followers of Jesus, have fellowship with one another, be obedient to Christ, killing our sin together. So how did you test? How did you test this morning? Are you in fellowship with other believers? 
uh, are you being obedient to Christ? Again, with a, with a proper motive and heart posture and your desire is, I, I love God, I wanna make Christ known. Are you attacking and waging war on the sin that is your flesh? And if you are, praise God. Let's keep pursuing these things together. Let's keep doing life together. Let's keep seeking confidence. Have confidence that Jesus Christ has truly saved you. And let's make an impact on this world. Let's make an impact on our families. But if you are not confident, then here's what I want you to do. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says this. If you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sin and say, Jesus, I am utterly wicked, I am utterly rebellious against you, but I I want you to be my Lord, I want you to save me from my sin, I'm I'm running away from it, I'm going to trust in you, I'm going to follow after you. He is faithful and just, he is right in forgiving you all your sin and cleansing you from unrighteousness. So I'm going to pray for us. And we're gonna sing another song. And all all I want you to do, we're gonna have a couple pastors down here. I'll be down here. I just want you to come to the altar if the Holy Spirit is leading you. And pray to Christ. Pray for forgiveness. Come and ask us to pray for you if you need prayer. But, But do not neglect the nudging of the Holy Spirit. Do not leave this place with your heart hard towards God, with your heart angry towards God or me. Let us humbly seek the will of God together and be encouraged and leave courageous and excited. Pray with me. Father, I thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you that you've given me the opportunity to to share your word. Someone who is, God, I am totally unworthy to share your word. I am totally unworthy to be saved and used by you. But God, you look down and not because of anything good in me, but simply out of your your storehouse of great love and grace and mercy, you saved me. You called me. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I know that in this place you have done that same thing with so many in here. So Lord, I pray that in this moment you you would call some to ministry even, that you would call some to the mission field even, that you'd call some to their neighbors to go and share the gospel and to be loving them, to be obeying what you've called us to do out of great overwhelming knowledge and awareness of your love for them. Lord, I pray that those in here who do not know you, I pray that your spirit would be illuminating their hearts, convicting them of their sin, but showing them that, that even though they are desperately wicked, desperately rebellious, desperately deserving your judgment, God, you are desperately and just overwhelmingly gracious towards them, willing to save. God, move us to repentance and faith in the work of Jesus and make us a new creation. Help us to be different. God, I pray that you will do all these works for your glory and for our good. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.